You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. In this panel, we, we sort of move from some of the general patterns that we were talking about in the first session and start talking about what was observed at the, at the national level, some of the detail there. Um, once again, we've got an online audience. I think, um, am I right in saying that this is being recorded and will be on, on the website later? So just be conscious that you know, what, you're, what you're saying will be on the web afterwards. Um, people who are online are very welcome to um, post in questions, which we will try and take along with questions from people in the room. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce the panel. So working from left to right, we have Alexandra Simons, who's a senior research fellow at the Institute of Policy Analysis and Research, EPAR, in Rwanda. His colleague, Lucia de Corta, who is now, I believe, an ODI research associate. Um, Dr. Yisak Tefera, who is the coordinator for the relatively new Ethiopia Centre for Child Research in the Ethiopian Development Research Institute. Research Institute or Resource Institute? Yes. Research yes. Institute. Um, on my right, we have uh, Professor Kim abel Kuyunza, who's the Associate Professor of Rural Development in the de Department of Development Studies in uh, the College of Social Sciences and Humanities in Tanzania. And finally, on my right, uh, far right is Vidya Diwaka, who is the Chronic Poverty advisory network, I have to get used to the change in name, um, at ODI and uh, a senior research officer involved in this study. And we'll be talking about Nepal. So um, this session is intended to be structured in a fairly conversational way. Um, so we're going to try and follow some some see themes and some threads through and, and bring out some of the differences. Um, if you have any questions, then I think we're, we're open to just put your hand up and feed them into the process. And we will try and finish at 12.30 so that we can then have lunch and start the final session in the afternoon on time. Does that sound okay? Good. All right. Um, we had a, a presentation from um, Fred this morning on sort of the ideas of, of the political economy of how governments focus on the big questions of economic development, social delivery improvements, and poverty reduction. And the degree to which sustained escapes from poverty, this, this concept that this research, this longitudinal research, is trying to draw out, how that fits into those. So I just thought I'd, I'd start by asking some of our panelists who would, um, now how that concept, how the idea of allowing people to and supporting people to escape poverty on a consistent basis, um, how that fits into the, the sort of political narrative in the countries in which they've, <coughs> they've been working. So, I mean, maybe if we start with um, you know, Tanzania, because it was, you know, it emerged this morning as potentially the most, um, the most impressive and the most dramatic of the, of the countries in the, the set in terms of supporting sustained um, escapes from poverty. So to what extent does the 
the political leadership, C, focusing on helping people over the poverty line and then continuing upwards. To what extent is that part of their thinking? And, and what then, between the, the principles and the actual practice, what gets in the way um, in, in terms of the delivery of, of services for the poor? Thank you. Immediately after Tanzania got independence in 1961, three enemies were announced, and those were poverty, hunger, and uh, diseases. And since then, policies have been in place to make sure those enemies of the nation are brought down, if not uh, eliminated. So all the governments have been, have been focusing on those ones, but because Tanzania is an agricultural country, in the country we have agriculture employing about 67% of the people, agricultural policies have been at the heart of development planning. Uh, recently, we have had a program called National Agricultural Inputs Voucher Scheme, whereby poor households are given subsidized inputs to improve um, agriculture, and this has worked positively to the families which benefited from those inputs. But uh, unfortunately, the households which needed such, such assistance were very many, which means if we have to, to reduce poverty more effectively, we have to, to increase, to scale up, to reach more people so that uh, more people can, can improve uh, uh, production. But definitely also, uh, the government is supporting entrepreneurship so as to, to increase linkages between farming and non-farm activities so that more people can, uh, can get uh, uh, out of poverty. <coughs> that's what I can say brief, uh, briefly. Okay. Yes. So that's, that's the sort of the current, the current key, yeah. keystone policy yeah. for... And to what extent do you think the government has in mind the very poorest in the design of that policy, or is it, or is it thinking about those people who are a little bit higher, around the poverty line or just above the poverty line? Do you think this is this is a policy that works for the very poorest in in rural Tanzania? I would say yes, especially particularly with the current uh, government, the fifth one, which is led by Dr. John Magufuli, and in order to target the very poor. He has, uh, he's concentrating on uh, social services, especially the ones that are for poor people. For instance, he has started free education in primary and secondary education. He's also expanding health services. And also there is a program which is called uh, um, improvement of market infrastructure, value addition, and uh, rural finance. By doing so, it is expected that, uh, that uh, uh, more poor people are going to benefit and uh, reduce their, their levels of poverty. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe Lucia or Alex, you know, how, how would this 
play out in Rwanda? I mean, to what extent does sort of a narrative of lifting people, you know, getting people onto a trajectory and keeping them going, how does that fit into the, the Rwandan government's vision? Well, I was, I'm the qualitative researcher on this, and I was just speaking to my colleague and to, and to um, Fred on this. And it seems that what I've witnessed in the qualitative research is an awful lot of people selling up land in order to fund consumption, um, which is worrying. And um, uh, this means that we find whether it's like the trader population in, in and outside of Kigali or whether it's the farming population in the rural areas, we're finding there's a polarization because between those who are included in these cooperatives, in the agricultural modernization, um, and those who aren't. And so when um, it seems that, what maybe Alex can um, expand on this, it seems that the focus is on development and not, not short-term, you know, focusing on short-term poverty or um, impoverishment. That, you know, if we can get this highly modernized, um, something very similar to the newly industrializing countries of East Asia, right? You know, a, a, a very clean, beautiful, urban plant, Kigali, where traders can't just come in. So this is a problem about the question about urbanization. If you can't come in and buy high and sell low, which is what a lot of the youth do, a lot of people, a lot of people going into, say, Dar es Salaam, they will, make, they will be able to get a job by buying a big box of laundry <coughs> detergent and then putting that into smaller amounts and selling low. They can survive on that. You can't do that in Kigali, right? If you go in, you're going to have to work in the designated market area. So there's a lot of, if you want to sell clothes, you can't, right? So there's, there's a lot of regulations. But apparently, um, there's also a very ambitious agricultural project, and there's an ambitious villagization process which keeps going on. This is a less coercive form of villagization, but if you can imagine an entire group of rural people being relocated into an entirely new area, which has services and access to public um, and uh, public work schemes, it's a completely it's a, it's a, it's a displacement. So all of this is going on at the same time. So you're going to have teething problems. You're going to have people unable to fund consumption and lose livelihoods. And so that's that's particularly in the recent period. So no amount of social protection can help when you find people who are in level fours falling to le um, falling to just below <coughs> the poverty line. And um, yeah, so if you want to expand on why it's long, t why, why they have this long-term view. Yeah, well, I think that what what is really related to Fred is to to, to what Fred explained in, in the first yeah. session this morning, is that in Rwanda you you have to think about macro and micro. And sometimes you can have a, at the micro level, you can have a, a short to long run trade off. Okay, so for example, the policies is really driven by two or three documents, and these documents they're really oriented towards growth and poverty reduction. And then all the other policies they are related to these red tape, so economic transformation, anti corruption measures. So everything go, goes into that direction, but not in the short run. So it might be the case that you will have, at the micro level, people um, 
getting problems or, or uh, being impoverished, this is also what we see in the data, that you have a lot of movement for yeah, people. So you have a lot of escapes, but you have also a lot of uh, impoverishment. And that goes back to, I think, your, goes back to your question of this morning. Um, is there a conflict between what we see in the MDG's data and what we observe? Absolutely not. So you can take it as something bad. I see it more as a good news, is that you have much more people going out of poverty than what you see in the MDG's data. So if you can secure going out of poverty, then you will have much more poverty reduction. So what this data doesn't show is that people fo are falling back into poverty. So actually, we could have much more poverty reduction. Um, yes, and then, well, that was the, 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 the let's say, poverty That's reduction it. part. And then for the sustained escape, in Rwanda, they have a, a, maybe the framework which could enable a sustained escape is that the, 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 the citizens, the households are um, classified in different categories. If you're very, let's say, very, very poor, uh, very poor, poor, and then, let's say, rich, then you have access to different uh, programs of poverty reduction. And so this, this, this framework could help uh, sustain escapes. Um, if it's further developed and further analyzed. Okay. So in a way, the, the, the scheme that the categorization that the government uses for classifying people could help to inform their thinking about who does and doesn't move up between categories. Yes. Okay. And the problem is they're focusing on level one and two. Right. Right. So one and two is um, what we find for, you know, people are falling out of extreme poverty. And this is because social protection um, is, is focused on those two groups through the community. So if the community thinks that you're not a very moral character, you might not be, you might not get it. You might not get it for a range of reasons. But it's focused on level one and two. Level three, unfortunately, is a huge category of anyone who owns a, a business or small piece of land, which is just about everybody. Um, and if you have um, either a rental home or a home. So a lot of people are classed out of it. And so when there's a drought or when there's ill health, it's inflexible downwards. I mean, you have to really get the community support to support you to say, hey, actually, we, we are now eligible for social protection. But in this transitionary period, a lot of people are, 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 are complaining about this. Level four is only for the very rich. So that is the problem. And it's only been, it's only a new category. I think it was 2015 or 2016, this new grouping. So the, the, the government's doing great on extreme poverty, extreme forms of poverty. But yeah, but not on, not on what impoverishment. Comes next. Yes, not on what comes next. The okay. growth and the lack of regulations that you need for that growth to move into or form jobs. And the lack of regulations. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> you say? Yeah. It occurs to me that there's some similarities. I mean, it, people often compare Rwanda and Ethiopia in terms of the political vision, the, the fairly strong sort of political structure and, and drive. Ethiopia is obviously that much bigger, very diverse, um, agroecologically, socially. To what extent do you think the, the Ethiopian government is making these kind of trade-offs between short-term, long-term? 
Um, you know, is it is it saying okay, we accept that some people are going to become worse off? You know, we have to do this to sustain the long-term growth. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, <coughs> I think we share Rwanda and Tanzania in some ways in uh, in the last 40 years uh, of experience because uh, we are uh, a feudal system before 40 years there were then the social system which uh, socialism which Tanzania also share then which brought that change in, into the uh, land ownership of by the hands of few. So in this study, we reviewed the three systems that the feudal change into the dark, where there is a major issue was the, uh, the change of land ownership, which is uh, land to the tiller was uh, the main method of the government. Then to deal with the poverty the government has done beyond distributing land, then what they did was villagization and uh, forced resettlement, which has been, of course, an issue of contention. But these were the areas where the government was trying, the Dar government trying to address poverty. But and, and gender relations to a significant extent as well. Yeah, gender relationship also was, yeah. but it has come very clearly in the third uh, government, which is um, with gender issues addressed properly. <coughs> but the Derg, after the fall of the Derg, then it, the new government inherited the same things that the land has to be uh, in the hands of the farmers. Mm -hmm. But it changes the villagerization and the, the resettlement into more of um, social protection. Social protection where people as uh, there exist, then addressing the poor economic situation of the poor people mm -hmm. so that they don't, I mean, uh, live in poverty, but it's, uh, it's maintaining their existence. So social protection has been a big program, which it has been also very uh, supportive of that one. <coughs> Nearly about 8 million people have been just benefiting so that they don't fall further. All at the same time, if they want to move to the next level, I think they have to have that safety net level, which has been done. But beyond that, to the development, uh, agricultural-led development has been done, I mean, for some years. And that proper uh, policy of the government has had some good returns that in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. we have about... Uh, the poverty line people live before I below poverty line recently is 23.5, which has been 15% in the last 15 years reduction. Yeah. So, but now the new thing is uh, gender issue, of course, because it's not only land distribution, but land certification has brought that women also have the right to land certification. So, if they divorce, then they can't take their land. So, there is proper approach and it is giving uh, of course a return into poverty reduction but still there are some problems okay that segues quite nicely into into sort of discussion about gender issues more broadly so but yeah i mean in in nepal how did these issues play out and to what extent are a woman sharing in the opportunities and the risks that that um you know face people trying to escape poverty and stay out of poverty Right. Thanks, Tim. I think with Nepal, what we see a lot in the quantitative analysis of the Nepal Living Standards Survey around from 19, the mid-90s to the 2010 period and from the fieldwork is that while there are initiatives to work towards women's empowerment in the country, there's still certain norms, certain adverse social norms, um, whether relate several norms, whether related to caste-based, alcohol abuse, separation, and so on, but particularly it's time and again in the fieldwork, gender-based norms which need to still be combated in order to work towards empowering women. 
So for example, from the quantitative analysis, what we see is that female headship alone is associated with an increased risk of a transitory escape from poverty that is increased by over seven times compared to male heads. And then digging a bit deeper into the analysis, what we see is that it's actually the type of female-headed household which might be responsible for this. So you see, for example, that amongst transitory escapers, the types of female-headed households, around 88% of female-headed households are of transitory escapers are either divorced, separated, or widowed. But then if you look at female-headed households that have escaped poverty sustainably over time, this figure reduces to under half of the sample. So there's a big di difference in the types of female-headed households that you encounter. So what are the non-divorced, widowed, or separated? Are those female-headed households whose male partner is absent for migration? Yeah, um, so yes, so sometimes okay. there's female-headed households which are married, um, and in those cases, oftentimes you see that it's because the male has migrated abroad or locally and ascending remittances. So in the survey, then they're classified as um, female-headed. Um, so that's one constraint, and that relates to the stigma that a lot of times these women experience. Um, a lot of ret female returning migrants, as well, key informants had noted from our study, um, had difficulties in securing loans to start businesses, for example, due to banks' um, perception that they were less able to um, undertake business, or undertake small businesses. That was one instance for returning female migrants. And there was also social stigma, for example, around um, particularly where the female migrant had migrated abroad and engaged in domestic work, with domestic work being oftentimes um, perceived to be equated with compromising their dignity or sexuality. And oftentimes then these women would return and not be able to uh, use the skills learned through migration, so then oftentimes be forced, feel um, pressured to migrate again once more under vulnerable or precarious conditions. So that again was another constraint. Um, besides this, on the one hand, so I spoke about divorced, separated, and um, widowed women, but on the other side, we also see from this analysis that marriage alone may be insufficient in promoting a sustained escape from poverty. And from our analysis, we see that this is particularly the case, again, where norms act to curtail women's mobility. So for example, I'll just mention really briefly a quote from one of our female life, inter life history interviewees, Arshi, in rural dialect. And she notes that her freedom of movement was curtailed ever since her husband migrated. So she says, quote, I used to work before and live with my husband. After he went abroad, I could stay I could go and stay in an urban area, but I didn't go because people will think badly about me if I went and stayed there alone. People of the village perceive badly if women go out here more often, end quote. So that's there on the one hand, this reduced mobility, but at the same time, there is, if you look at the rural-urban differences, you see hints of increased agency for women, um, but at, which may be responsible for their, their improved ability to sustain and escape in urban areas. But at the same time in urban areas, you, see, you have the workload stemming from the double burden of income and care work, but without the same level of community support that exists oftentimes in urban areas. So in these instances, care work is often being transmitted to daughters and contributing to the transmission of gender, <coughs> traditional gender roles and with it income and time poverty. So you see these different constraints which, which at the moment need, still need to be overcome in order to promote their empowerment and cont contribute to sustained escapes. Okay. And are the government policies to support this? I mean, is this something that, you know, changes sort of uh, on its own with 
more urbanisation, more media, or is it something that government has actually actively engaged with? I think it. There are steps underway. There are certain norm change interventions. There are domestic successes itself that Nepal can look to replicate. And the oftentimes you see top-down approaches as well as um, so external norm change interventions, which often originate outside the com community. So, for example, through non-government organizations, through government policies and programs that promote gender equality, as well as internal interventions with internal to the community. So, including female role models and so on, schools, media supportive male relatives, community leaders, and so on. I think the key here is that two things. One is that there should be a negotiated approach to norm change. So one that avoids purely top-down directives, but rather focuses on what's important to influential local players, develop constituencies, and so on. Um, and secondly, as I mentioned, learn from domestic successes. And these successes from these certain initiatives, community-level initiatives and otherwise, have rested on the inclusion of different levels of stakeholders in these initiatives. So for example, from even adolescents to parents and the wider community. So I think it's this holistic approach that is needed. Um, the issue of sort of land grabs and, uh, you know, women who are widowed losing their land. I mean, is that an issue in the, I saw it come up in the Kenya paper. Is that also an issue in the Tanzania context? Yes. In Tanzania, land grabbing is an issue. First of all, most of communities are patriarchal. So land is mostly owned by men. Especially once a woman is, is married, uh, the land on which she works is said to be owned by, by, by the husband. And uh, in rural areas, the land is owned through customary, customary arrangements. So once, for instance, uh, the husband dies, the relatives of the late man come and say that all the land, all the livestock, the house, and even the woman belong to, to them. And this is more so in uh, rural areas. But uh, in urban areas, it's different because people are more educated, and hence they can follow legal procedures to make sure that the woman and the children get their right. Otherwise, in most places, as I have just said, the problem is uh, very big. Thank you. I think before the break, somebody raised the question about whether issue um, access to justice is a social policy area that you know we haven't paid enough attention to collectively in in thinking about what what poor people need. So, what's what's the alternative to the customary justice? I mean, what's the presence of the formal legal system in rural Tanzania? Um, what could be done to strengthen it? Is it is it a, a matter of inadequate numbers of, of judges and not enough access to courts, or is it just that customary, customary law has sway for some other reason? I don't think it's the, the question of shortage of lawyers. Because since 1999, uh, an act was, was put in place, which is called uh, the 1999 Rural Land um, act. And by that one, in a, in a case related to land at the village level and even at the wood level, will not be passed unless uh, at least there are, there are two women. 
every village has a land committee which has uh, seven people, including three women and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and four men. And no decision is made on, on land issues without having at least two women in that committee. So what happens uh, is just uh, some form of bribe. As we said, bribe, bribe is there. So men would make sure that uh, they bribe whoever is concerned, whoever is making decision so that uh, men can maintain their, their custom or, or their, 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 their tradition or pretend to be, to be the, the masters of land. And uh, things become worse if the case is not resolved at the community level. When it goes to the district, then men get it more easy to apply some, some bribes and then get uh, access to, to land. But uh, as, as days are going on um, and uh, gender awareness is, is growing, uh, more women are getting access to land. And some of them are even getting land uh, through um, customary and definite legal proceedings. But uh, the more remote we go to villages, the, the more the problem becomes big. Does this resonate with any of the other case studies as well? I think it, it sort of feeds back into this discussion about devolution and decentralization. In some ways, you know, there are inherent advantages in taking government closer to people. There are also maybe some disadvantages. I mean, I'm assuming that Rwanda is fairly highly centralized and it's a bit easier to maintain this discipline. Ethiopia somewhere, Ethiopia somewhere in between. So does, does this sort of compare or, or contrast? Yeah. Um, well, so in Rwanda, well, let, let's pick up two examples. In, in terms of justice, that comes from history. They have a, a special, let's say, local way of resolving conflicts. Um, first, conflicts related to the genocide and for reconciliation um, of the people, but something that is really, um, really, really interesting is how they deal with this justice at the the very low um, level. So between citizens, so you have when when let's say chief of the village, who is responsible for, uh, well, actually resolving this conflict. So if you have conflicts with your neighbor. And if you are uh, richer, for example, then you could expect that you, you're going to win the dispute, you know, the problem. But then this chief of village comes, and he actually he's there to to find a way to resolve the conflict. So you don't have this this unbalanced power at the very citizen level, I would say, on the justice side. No, they have another mechanism, which is for decision making. Um, so the idea is that the citizen know, knows better uh, the problems they face than, than the, the, the decision makers. And then if they can participate to decision making, then this will actually uh, accelerate the pover poverty reduction rate. And we see that people actually do effectively participate at the village level um, and they raise their concerns about uh, what should be the priority or what kind of policy they would need. However, there is uh, some problems in the uh, information flow to the uh, decision makers. 
So they're participating, but how this information then flow up to the decision maker, how they are aware of that, and even more after that, the, the, um, the feedback from the decision maker to the citizens is, well, let's put it like this, could be very improved. Yeah, uh, I think we are in between. In Tibet, we have the federal system, yeah. but a bit of centralized in some ways. Um, <coughs> so land issue, I mean, it is that every family or woman or ma husband or wife have equal rights to the land. So if there is divorce, then they take their share. Uh, but there is application problem in some ways. So although we have um, office women affairs office at every level which follow up that land issue also which is uh, <coughs> an important area but the application differs for instance in the north part of the country then it is applicable it's mm -hmm. applied that everybody or every wife has the right so that there is no polygamy and there is no problems but in the south there is some in some areas there are arrangements that the communal the elders take care of some responsibility in sharing the land or uh, husbands having more power, but still that there is a penetration of the national policy that every wife has to have the right, and it's now been implemented. But there is a bit of uh, challenge <coughs> in the south part of the country. But still, women's affairs and the legal uh, institutions always apply that every woman has to have the right for land. Okay. Question for that. Uh, Chairman, I feel very, very uncomfortable here because okay. we are avoiding the key issues. We are dancing around them. Okay? There was a bloke called Joe Stiglitz. Some of the audience might mm -hmm. actually have heard of him. He said the West has always ignored land issues because it would have alienated the elites in the South. Absolutely bang on. But there is more than that. I work primarily with farmers in northern Malawi, in Uganda, and in Tanzania. And we try to provide them services that are relevant to their level of education. Education was mentioned this morning. Primary education is lamentable in most of East Africa. Classes of 100, 120 people are the common standard in the rural areas. And the girls, the women, are at the very end of the class because they don't deserve education. We know that the farmers are the older women, the ones who have had no education in the past and are not receiving education now. Now, Kim comes from a university that provides radio education, or you used to. I don't know if you still do, Kim, at Soikone. Radio education in the different languages would, have been, would be tremendously useful in changing the level of education because what is now required in a situation in which climate is changing very rapidly is intensification of agriculture, not extensification because there is no more land to be had. Agreed. Now, the lack of education, the lack of concentration on the power of women all of this means that there is greater poverty on the land. That feeds rural exodus, which feeds global exodus. The University of Texas in November made a study that showed an exact correlation between global migration 
and the level of temperature changes in a variety of countries across Africa. I think they took 20 different countries. When temperature was stable, there was no migration. When temperature was worsening, migration <coughs> went up. For goodness sake, could we not start talking of the real issues? The two countries that have been referred to several times here as having a system that works are Ethiopia, which is now training 60,000 people to become effective extension workers. Rwanda is doing something similar. Zambia, Rwanda, and Ethiopia are the only countries, in my knowledge, and I've worked in 35 different countries across Africa, that are trying to tackle the land issues seriously. All the others is a matter of casual events. We need to learn from what farmers and, and organizations that work at the grassroots do and support them not refining our policies to deliver what is, at the end of the day, a World Bank, a Goldman Sachs, and a Eurocentric approach to development. It can't work, and we see the evidence now. Oh, I'm sorry. I am Benny Bitzer. I'm a Marxist. I'm a ma a, a <laughs> I am a Gramsci Marxist. You know, the ones that, uh, um, yes. uh, that uh, uh, I would never belong to any organization that would have me. me exactly. Thank, thank you very much. I mean, I, my initial reaction would be there's a bit more diversity in what works. I mean, I think there are different, there are different paths to success. Um, I think you're right that maybe we haven't we haven't been broad-minded enough in terms of different land solutions, but I, I think there have been different countries that have gone about in in different ways. So, just as I think we haven't got one solution, I don't I don't think there's necessarily one one path that we we necessarily should follow. But I believe you wanted to say something about yeah, yeah, about radio education or about land. Both. both, both. both. No, Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the, the, the comment about uh, agricultural education extension. It's a problem in Tanzania. We have about 15,000 villages, the whole country, and only about 8,000 extension workers. Initially, before the international structural adjustment programs, we had a plan to have an agricultural worker for every village, but uh, implementation of those SAPs led to retrenchment of some agricultural workers, and uh, we have not been able to attain that particular plan. It's unfortunate also that uh, the so-called, uh, not the so-called, Agricultural education through the radio and TV. We used to have very good programs nationally, including um, newspapers about uh, agriculture called uh, Modern Agriculture. We still have them, even uh, at my university, Sokoine. We have uh, the so called uh, Sokoine University of Agriculture TV. We broadcast some. some I catch information, but unfortunately, the coverage is uh, little. So we think 
increasing the, the coverage, and also if the government pursued a policy to increase the extension workers, those two aspects would uh, help us improve agricultural productivity because farmers will get more information and do modern production, but also it would also include increasing farmers' access to markets, and by so doing this, it would contribute substantially to decreasing their poverty. Thank you, Mr. Chair. On sort of agriculture and land, I wonder if we could also ask about, you know, Nepal, because I think that's one where the, the research suggests interesting combinations of land-based and off-farm strategies. And I think that echoes a little bit, you know, what was found in the Kenya study, which is, yeah, the land, having a plot of land gives you a little bit of security, gives you a fallback, gives you, you know, the equivalent of a pension in old age when that is not yet there, but it's not going to be enough under most circumstances to get you out of poverty and, and to keep you on a track out of poverty. So, but Nepal, I think you have the interesting additional sort of factor of a very high level of, of sort of dynamics of migration, both internal and interna international. So, Lydia. Yeah, thanks. I think with lands, I mean, first I'll briefly outline again, like in the other countries, you do see several constraints around the profitability and productivity of land stemming from low fertility, low rainfall, um, oftentimes even poor, uh, lower number of productive workers in the household as the household begins to age. So they n n might not necessarily be able to farm that land as effectively. Um, but that's a bit of the negatives. On the positives, what we see where agriculture has been successful is in situations where there has been improved production, there has over time been improved access to markets, both physical and virtual. Um, and extension services slowly over time, some improvements in infrastructure um, in rural areas. And from the fieldwork as well, what we see with agriculture is that specifically it's agriculture with collaboration as one aspect which was conducive to promoting sustained escapes from poverty. So for example, again, just to mention a quote from a life history who captures it better than I could probably do. So I'll share a quote from Kripa who mentions that joint work was key. So her husband, so her neighbor actually stated that quote, she started working and her husband had also bought land. She started farming in that land and production was good and now she does not have to worry about having three meals a day, end quote. And then another, similarly, another life history interview, he noted that there's a saying that in a good household, family members discuss with one another in the evening, but in a bad household, families fight and people fight in the morning. So we discuss in the evening about household matters. So it's this real collaborative spirit, I think, that I mean, that's coming out of the fieldwork as being important, even in situations with smaller land sizes due to um, inheritance, splitting up land sizes further going forward and so on. There's still a scope for agriculture being one of the pathways out of poverty. Um, but within all of this, what we see at the same time is these combinations, agriculture with collaboration, even non-farm diversification with education and so on, which we might get to later. But underpinning all of this is a recognized importance of financial management. And Andrew mentioned this earlier in the last panel as well. So for example, again, to draw from a quote, who summarizes it quite well, Sabir in Urban Die Like a Sustained Escaper noted, quote, the first thing needed is financial discipline. One has to spend and invest the income in a right place and should save the remaining amount. 
Another thing, they should work hard with continuous effort. They should use their resources such as land wisely and invest their money where they will get benefits. With the money saved, they should invest in buying land or educating their children, end quote. And I think Sabri's comments here is really useful because it speaks, it's really reflective because it speaks to the, in, to the importance of investing both in tangible productive assets such as lands, but then also in intangible assets such as education. And reflecting this in our regression analysis, similarly, we find that among sustained escapers, its improvements and increase in asset value, as well as situations where the household head has completed s secondary education, where you see improvements in welfare over time amongst the subset. So I think it's really this combination of whether you're within agriculture or even if you're engaging in non-farm activities, they're different pathways, but all underpinned by some degree of financial management. I mean, I think this also some interesting lessons to be learned outside this sample from from vietnam i mean uh, there was some some very interesting research on this kind of managed exit from uh, from from land and from agriculture so you you don't want people exiting the land because it's no longer sustainable because their plots are too tiny to sustain them um because they've got no choice and sort of flowing to the cities out of desperation if if you can manage this transition were off-farm opportunities and urban opportunities kick in and can absorb, um, you know, rural, rural workers, then I think you've got the prospects for agricultural and non-agriculture going in, in, you know, in, in complementary um, steps. That's pretty hard to pull off. And I mean, I, I think coming back to this question, trying to explain the East Asian success is interesting. You could argue that it was a period of socialism investments in human capital, in education, in health, and then distribution of land fairly equally. They were all dictatorships. Yeah. Dictatorships. You, you can argue about non-multi-party channels of accountability within Vietnam. But um, then they went, when they went into sort of liberalization, people had a sort of an equal share in the economy. They had some human capital, they had some land, and... Um, and, and could actually fuel that kind of takeoff. But does anybody else have anything specifically on land? Because I'm, I'm conscious that we're going to run out of time soon. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the diversification is very important. In some cases, for instance, in some areas where we studied that when there is fertile land and very proxy to urban areas or to towns, then they're complementary of economic resources. So that the, they move out of poverty. So land could be considered as, I mean, the basic one as springboard, but it should be complementing the urban. For instance, uh, one case from our Oromia site where we have is uh, one of the house, uh, households who moved out of poverty was achieved, sustained, escaped, say that my household has moved out of poverty. We are able to construct a house in town and they rent it. Then they bought uh, through the rent of money. Then they bought more oxen. Then they uh, produce more, and they have improved their economy. So they have, they have also complementing or supporting the agricultural activity itself, but at the same time investing in the nearby town where mm -hmm. they have milk cows. Then they sell also their milk into the urban. So the proxy is sometimes the fertility and the complementarity of the town and. Uh, rural areas are very important to move out of poverty. So what, if one fails, then the other will make sustain for some time. Yeah. Then they will capture the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
before we sort of throw it open again to, to the audience, I thought I'd just like to go around and ask each of the each of the people on the panel, you know, what would be the one panel lesson, uh, the one policy lesson that you would take from you know the research that you did in in your country, and to what extent do you think lessons are transferable between countries? I mean, either between the countries in this research or drawing on other lessons. So, you know, what what would you say that your research can you know, can suggest in country, and what do you think you might benefit, or the country might benefit from taking from other countries? Should we start start with Rwanda? Um, well, I think mine is really uh, random specific, and it it, it really linked to what uh, Andrew said this morning that we really need this poverty proofing of of policies. Well, I would go. Um, maybe a little bit behind this. Uh, in Rwanda, what we have, it's they have really political ownership. The, the government wants to own its own policies. There's a will for poverty reduction and, and, and for growth. And they are actually quite good at implementing these policies. Um, and they can move fast, adapt, change the policies. So I would, I, I would go really for um, a really uh, systematic system of uh, monitoring and evaluation of each policies because it it can be implemented there and um, and well the, the government is really uh, willing to have this kind of, of monitoring tools and then if if the the monitoring and evaluation and the analysis of policies is properly done then they will know where are the weaknesses and they will be able to adapt quite quickly and then then this will definitely benefit the poor um, so yes, so it's not really thematically oriented. Can I just play devil's advocate? And the idea of poverty-proofing policies, I think, is a really good one. I think you know, do a test and think, okay, who who ben who benefits and who is going to lose. Just one question would be, you know, are there always going to be some losers and some winners? And and sometimes some of them, you know, both the winners and the losers will be different groups amongst the poor. You may be playing off the urban poor against the rural poor. There are some policies that may, it may not be possible to ensure that no poor lose. Um, to what extent are, are you know, this m &E going to be able to pick up that? Well, I think that it's about informing. The, yeah. the, the, uh, Knowing the, what you're the, doing. The government and the, yeah. the people, that the decision makers. And after that, who is losing and who is winning? It's the question, it's the public policy question. And yeah. that's a political choice. And they have to make it. Well, okay. I'm happy to be an economist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the a few lessons just we learned from this study is the, that first thing I think um, the poor getting more poorer is I mean the main challenge here. So that to bring them back takes a lot of time and lots of courses. So it is important that we keep the, maintain them at some level, which is uh, through social protection is very important so that they maintain a certain level, then we can move when it's possible. Uh, but still, social protection in our study areas, uh, particularly in Ethiopia, is more of community level shocks, response to community shocks, uh, such as productive safety net, but not household level, mm -hmm. which is very important, disability, ill health, old age, as these have their own costs and just, uh, of course, depleting their resources. So that is, I think, the area where we need also to, to work at household level, 
social protection is very important. Although we have now health insurance being introduced in Ethiopia um, uh, some ways, but still the accumulation of that one affects the whole system or the whole macroeconomy. So it's very important that household level social protection is very essential. Uh, the second issue is, I think, um, diversification is very important now. It's not just only far depending on farming, but other resources supporting each other. When one fails, then the other can come in and just uh, supporting each other. Diversification is uh, important. And the other lesson I see is that in rural areas, sustained escape is being achieved not by investing in agriculture, but getting from agriculture, but investing in non-agricultural activities, which are those who get a small amount of money from small irrigation or livestock they tend to invest in urban areas so that they build a house for a rent. So beyond agriculture is, I think, more of the sustainability than because of the droughts or uh, rain failure, then it's very, very vulnerable to invest in rural areas. That's where. And also this one has a gender, I mean, perspective in a sense that women tend to be more successful in beyond agriculture, yeah. in the small business. Like the one example, uh, Andrew has presented in the morning the, the Asqual story. She just she moved to rural area, but she's divorced, divorced twice, but she has been successful. So uh, beyond farming for women is more more more, more supportive. So that uh, investing on that one will be, I think, uh, very important. Migration is becoming important, although it's very issue in Ethiopia. Uh, it's a big issue in Europe as well. <coughs> but in all study areas we have. Migration, remittance from migration has been very important, especially investing in towns or starting businesses or investing in beyond uh, the rural areas. Uh, but there are ch some challenges, there are risky areas. For instance, in one of our study areas, a small town, about 90% of the house being built through the remittance coming from the, the Middle East. Yes. So. I, I think it is very significant, but still challenging. It is risky in some ways, but yeah. so it should be migration should be regulated in some ways, but still it it, it remains as an important uh, aspect of the, the uh, I mean, uh, sustained scape in some ways. Regulated but supported. Yes, yeah, regulated but supported. I, in some way, I think, well, there's a big issue here. Young people in Ethiopia, I want to, to go abroad. It's not. It's not only poverty, but also just achieving aspiration, a high aspiration. Yeah. You live better life because of education. You have a lot of education, and then you, you, you want to live beyond the farming or the hardship. Then that's the area where people want to do so. But so migration should be regulated. Now it has been sanctioned for the last few years, but now last week the parliament has uh, lifted the sanctions, so there will be regulated migration. But still, in Ethiopia, it's an important issue but should be regulated and risk avoided, then there will be some, I mean, important that. Thank you. Yeah. In Tanzania, what would yeah. the policy priority be? In Tanzania, be? I would propose, uh, not what we have written, uh, written that, that uh, because agriculture, the main economic activity, there should be policies to make sure that, uh, that uh, small-scale farmers get more support, particularly uh, in terms of technology, improve the seeds, fertilizers, 
so that the very poor <coughs> can get uh, more access to these ones, just so they can be supported to produce highly, also be supported to get markets so they can get a uh, profit. We also recommend land issues to be sorted out to minimize or end conflicts between crop producers and pastoralists. If you remember what uh, Dr. Andrew Schaefer was talking in the morning, where herders just took the, their cattle there, they destroyed the sugarcane, and even the factory was no longer able to function well. So if we land issues were sorted out in terms of policies and different implementation of the same, it means um, every party, farmers and uh, pastoralists, would get uh, land that is suitable, that is enough to them, and then either of the parties, both of them, will be able to, to progress. But this also should go hand in hand with control of petty corruption at the community level, because it contributes to aggravating the, the conflicts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And um, I mean, is, where would Tanzania look for, look for examples? I mean, does it look to other countries in, in the region for things that might work and that might be worth trying? Does it look beyond there to South Asia or East Asia or Latin America? We've been referring to the Greenish Revolution, right. which took place in the late 1960s and early 1970s okay. in Mexico and uh, in India, okay. and also in other, some, in some other countries. Vidya, yeah. last word to you. Thanks, Gantan. Well, I think the many, many issues that, were, that came up today really speaks to the need for a portfolio response, and this was outlined in CPAN's last chronic poverty report. But from this study, what really emerges is that, yes, a portfolio response is needed, but moreover, the portfolio response in turn should recognize the many pathways in which households can escape poverty sustainably. So from the Nepal study specifically, um, I'll give an example from agriculture because it continues to employ a majority of the country's poor and vulnerable populations. So on these pathways, there could be, for example, stepping up within agriculture. So I spoke about this earlier. So for example, through improved production, access to markets, extension services, and so on. Another pathway is stepping out to also engage in non-agricultural activities um, to diversify livelihood risk. And to sustain poverty escapes, what's been particularly successful here is where, for example, the temporary migration of poor households, um, household members have taken place to nearby towns or cities in the country, which has then helped offset seasonal income insecurity. Um, and then on a third pathway as well has been moving out of agriculture altogether, both as a means of escaping poverty and again reducing livelihood risk. And in this instance, it's particularly the combination of diversification with investments in education and with links to local employment opportunities or to similar opportunities offered through migration, which has had particularly successful effects on sustaining pathways out of poverty. So I think it's recognizing the portfolio response and the multiplicity of pathways. Okay, thank you very much. Lots of questions. There was one over here early that I sort of overlooked. So I'll start with you and then I'll take a couple over here, then we'll move to the right and then I think there was one or two in the middle. Okay, so. Hi, Dimitri Sergi, uh, 
Life and Hope charity. Um, just wanted a quick question regarding technological advances. Are any of the countries actually looking at advancing their agricultural methods, let's say, and is that helping, is that a way to help people out of poverty? Okay. I think the short answer is yes, but there's a lot of interesting variation around that. So uh, who's, who's the next person? Great. Fred. Uh, uh, thank you, Tim. Um, <coughs> I mean, sitting here in my <laughs> little corner listening to the discussion, I think that, again, we keep going back to what I, what I think are the easy solutions, uh, which are mainly technical. But having studied Rwanda so intensively and having looked at Ethiopia, and over the last, I came to London on Friday, and I've been having very interesting discussions with my taxi driver, who is from Eritrea. <coughs> I think the big question is the place of politics in all this, and what we can do about it. I mean, all the controversial things happening in Rwanda that Lucia is mentioning have everything to do with the government having come to power with a very definite agenda. We must get rid of impoverishment. We have to make society prosper. That is the big picture. Now, everything else is detail. Now, the reason why the government of Rwanda can carry out such controversial policies, like land reform and in removing grass-thatched houses from the countryside, forcing people to pay health insurance, all these things would have been immensely difficult in a liberal, multi-party democracy with competing political parties. Are you saying that's now, a good Uganda, thing or a bad thing? Uganda is a very yeah. good example of where the yeah. government gets utterly paralyzed by any suggestion that they are going to do something and people coming up and saying, we don't like it. Mm. We cannot organize motorcycle riders in Kampala. Mm. They cause such massive chaos. Attempts to tax them have failed because they're such a big voting constituency for the president. Now, for me, I think that we have a big question there. All these technical things, education, investing in health, those things can only be sustained in a very particular context. Now, what do we do? I mean, we can carry on forever, investing in small farming, doing all these things, but. The actual foundation, the one that I see in Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, I understand why the EPRDF were busy fighting to overthrow the Doug. They were holding constant seminars. And the questions that were preoccupying them was, how do we avoid another revolution springing from the countryside because people are impoverished? Mm -hmm. So for them, prosperity became a major preoccupation. How do you make the peasants well off? and safeguard yourselves from another uprising. Mm. Same thing in Rwanda. Now, how do we deal with the political question? We'll take maybe one more. Um, we'll take one in the middle. Oh. Let's do two more. Two of you and... Um, yeah, my name, my name is Marshall Coe. I'm from the African Forum, uh, Scotland. Um, I don't want to ask a question, but I just want to make a contribution. I don't know if that's okay at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, there's been an in some interesting points that have been raised by the panel, and I would like to um, 
congratulate you for your ongoing in-depth research. But I think what lacks from my perspective is a deeper understanding of um, the social behavioral understanding of the people that actually live in the villages where the poverty that you're talking about actually exists. Having grown up uh, in Africa and also moved to Europe, um, I've got a better understanding in terms of uh, the dynamics, some of the social dynamics before even you bring education. But you need to also understand what, where does poverty come from, from a, a very village level rural composition of Africa. There are a lot of dynamics. The dynamic stems from uh, deep understanding of uh, how to live sustainable, knowing exactly when to plant the crop, even with the means. So economic support without the knowledge that has been emphasized sometimes cannot eradicate profit. You can send a lot of money, pump a lot of money with DFID and all these organizations. But when people have got no knowledge of being sustainable at grassroots level, they cannot become sustainable. So I think we need to invest a lot in understanding um, how these people live and how best we can impact the knowledge of sustainability to them at village level. So this is what uh, will obviously touch what has been said earlier on in the morning, that we need to also look at policy initiatives from beneath. You know. So if we focus mainly on that, I think we may uh, actually make a lot of progress in understanding what happens because top, bottom sometimes can have problems like my dear gentleman has said, that we are crafting policies that should meet the needs of the people. But we also need to understand how these people live, yeah. how poverty starts. Where does it exactly start? Does it exactly start from, is it, is it a family thing? Even the land issues that you're talking about, there are systems, there's the feudal uh, systems that were inherited in Africa. There's the chief, chieftainship. People have moved in areas where they cannot claim land. All these are social and very important things to understand that if you've migrated in a different um, region or district, you've got no right to land. So there's been a lot of displacements, if, especially during the colonial era, and all these play come into perspective in yeah. defining the land tenure and the land, the land issues. And just to end, I'm from Zimbabwe, so the land tenure issues, I know it very well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We'll take one more there, and then we'll, take, we'll give a chance for the panel to answer, and if we have really good, quick-focused answers, then we might have room for a couple more questions. Uh, Pat Pridmore, um, University College London. I'm an emeritus professor. Um, I, we've been heard a lot in this session particularly about land, fertilizer, green revolution, and so on. Um, I'm not hearing anything the whole morning about water. Would anyone like to comment on water? Okay. Can we leave it there for the moment? Give everybody a, a quick chance to answer some of those. Um, has everybody got the, the questions? So very briefly, you know, are the things that we can do with improved agricultural practices? Um, you know, do we know a bit about that? I think we do. Um, I'm trying to work out who... Does anybody want to lead on that? We'll take one person for each question, I think. That, that's probably all we've got time for. Uh, the first one, you know, do we, do we know something about you know, how to get improved agricultural practices, improved farming practices, you know, and, and can get some, some gains from that. And does that help? Yeah, I think there's some <coughs> wonderful reports um, on the CPAN website 
on forms of indigenous agricultural technology and green technology. And, that, and it's a powerful argument for the way forward. And why I'm mentioning it, because I think it's relevant to a place like Rwanda, which has very fragile soils. And what, so when you, when you ask a farmer or a group of farmers, you're going to have to monocrop this because we want to market to that one agro-processing firm because that one agro-processing firm says that, you know, t coffee is the future for us, right? But they say, look, we, can't, we can grow it on this piece of land right here, but not that one next to it. And we've been telling them that, and then the person who, who suffers the, the downfall is the farmer, right? So trying to designate who, what, where, and how, right, without ways to keep the, the soil, you know, fertile, um, is a problem. And this is something that it matters not only for poverty, but it matters for environmental sustainability. So I th um, all I can do is direct you to that website. <laughs> if you could segue actually to the last question about water, and if you're like, you know, yeah. Ethiopia being a country where managing water and its unpredictability is a big issue. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think um, from our side we got um, water in terms of irrigation, I don't know, maybe that will be a relevant issue, that we have uh, some cases of where irrigation has been main source of escaping out of poverty, uh, some cases, but it's very limited in only in the southern part of some our community where there is enough water for irrigation. In, in all sites we have small irrigation, but it's only limited for a few farmers who have been destined to live or to be born to that area. So it's very limited uh, area and there is no way of redistribution uh, because it's very small uh, plot of land. Those who have access to that irrigation land, they have improved their life tremendously. But the problem is it's very, very limited. For instance, in one of the communities, it's about 30 households who have access to that irrigation. But they are very privileged, they have vegetable and there is a lot of inputs, uh, modern inputs being invested on that one. Because there is an irrigation policy in, in the government where there is a lot of investment being done technically and credit, giving credits and markets. Uh, so there, it's a big potential but very small resource we have. Well, that big uh, dam, I hope, once it comes, then we'll, we, we are hoping that we will improve our lives. Thank you very much. Um, can we go to Fred's sort of fundamental challenge about, you know, political systems and, village and vision and what can be achieved with strong government and what, you know, can be achieved in a, a liberal democracy? Um, maybe for contrasting... Um, you know, maybe if we have sort of Tanzania, which has had a, a fairly, in some ways, so far, gentle experience. It has avoided, you know, lapsing into conflict. It's, um, but has been fairly slow. Now seems to be entering a period with a fairly strong, assertive leader. And maybe, actually, you know, maybe contrast that with Nepal, you know, coming out of conflict a chance to recast politics, what, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of the, the Nepalese political system? So do you want to have the first go at Yes, I can. It's true that uh, Tanzania has been uh, peaceful since we got independence in 1961. And now we have the 50th president. 
the first one was Nyerere for for 24 years. The second one was uh, Mwinyi for 10 years. Next one was Mkapa for 10 years. The fourth one was Kikwete for 10 years. And the current one has been uh, in power for almost uh, three years. Uh, we, whenever a new regime comes in, although there are policies that are supposed to be implemented continuously, there are some personal biases whereby someone concentrates on some things different from his uh, predecessor and different from his uh, successor. So that one could uh, explain um, relatively little development in spite of having peace throughout the, 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 the years. An example is on, on a corruption. The first president uh, did very well in um, controlling corruption, but uh, the second one did not do very well. The third one did pretty well. The third one did not do, do very well. The fifth one is doing it very well. Yeah. It's done so well that uh, even the second president, Mwinyi, has suggested that, that uh, if the, the, the constitution allowed, it should be allowed to, to extend his tenure of the presidents. But he has just rebuked the people saying so, and called them to stop, to, to stop, to, to stop um, that one. And uh, just to something to what Jeffrey said, uh, the extent to which the same policies are impl implemented with different presidents is also a bit uh, different. So these aspects help to explain while with the peace throughout the years, we see do not have uh, uh, promising development. Thank you. So sort of quite a lot of continuity of policies <coughs> at a high level, mm -hmm. but the, the degree to which different presidents were able to implement yeah. them varied yeah, from, right. from yeah. high to low. Yeah. Okay. Video, Nepal, yeah. been through. Yeah, um, thanks, Kim and Tim, for your comments. Um, I think with Nepal, I'll change tracks a little and speak about some governance constraints or opportunities, depending on how you want to look at it. So as noted, for a portfolio response and so on, to be effective, there are certain governance opportunities which key informants and um, field work in the country noted could be taken up still. One was around um, a desire to see the government in the driving seat of change. Um, many in, there was a perception that while many policies exist to reduce, to, help, to work towards poverty reduction and build resilience, many believed that their implementation was rather weak and targeting could be more effective. So that's one. Another, again, going back to the norm change, people mentioned, first of all, norm change was needed to build confidence in order to hold the government accountable in the first place. So that was another window, another opportunity that could be um, built on. Another was in improving coordination both within and between donors, with NGOs, um, civil society organizations, government projects, and so on. Um, again, another around reducing intermediaries, which some people felt, some informants felt would um, help reduce the risk of corruption and increase the amount of money ultimately reaching beneficiaries. 
And ultimately, there was a general consensus that with the federal the process towards a federal system, that there was a window of opportunity here to be capitalized on. There was hope, a general sense of optimism that pervaded across um, across fieldwork and the key informant interviews, reflecting a wider sense of optimism in the country. I feel. And I think the last question about sort of the need to understand the kind of the micropolitics and the, the social processes at the, at the grassroots, I mean, my, my sense is that this research did try to do that with the qualitative, you know, key informant interviews that try to look into how changes in the environment, in political space over people's lives had, had changed it. But um, sec, if you... You know, to what extent do we have research that gives us a sense of social process, um, gives us a sense of people's relationship with their environment, and you know the degree to which they're able to to manage that? Um, do we do you think we have enough understanding there? What, where are our gaps? What do we need to do more on? You mean the macro policy and the no, social more, process? No, more. I think the the, the point being that um, we need to understand sort of social dynamics. We need to understand what people know about solutions, about what, what doesn't, doesn't work at, at the local level. Uh, oh, knowledge about the local level. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, development comes from, I'm from the top, so that sometimes it considers the local, uh, the local knowledge sometimes as backward or something. For instance, in our, uh, in, in our study here, we saw that uh, so just expenditure on social Obligation is more important than accumulating capital, for instance. One area where uh, some households have remained been drawn to poverty is because they spend a lot on social obligations, mm -hmm. religious obligations, marriage, weddings, and uh, a lot of things. So this has been considered as backward or something, um, not considered as some issues, but the local people would say that this is a more of social capital is very important for us, for our lives, um, and still challenging. And it, sometimes you would consider that uh, the local officials we say that spending on this one is dragging you into poverty, which is obvious, right? But at the same time, people would say that uh, we live, it's not just one economic life, but also social and cultural lives. And uh, there is a gap, I think. There is a lot of gaps in, in some ways, but still, what is coming up is the macro policies and the modernization issue is mm. overcoming the, lo the, the local things. And there is a bit of mismatch, I think, in some ways. And they don't listen to that in some ways. Even mm. the agriculture, all the livelihoods themselves, there are different livelihoods, but it's more of coming from the top, which is affecting also the local capacities, local knowledge in some ways. Okay. Thank you very much. I've got one minute left. So if somebody wanted to ask a very quick question and we can get a very quick answer. Have you discussed the case of ethnic oppressed minorities becoming poorer and poorer by internal um, colonialism follow, which was preceded by external colonialism, such as in Sri Lanka? <laughs> Um, that's probably going to take more than a minute, uh, but I will give I will give um, panelists a quick answer. I mean, I think this is this is a good question because it comes back down to the strong government, you know, um, in advocacy. 
you know, governments can be very good at things, but then if they're starting to get something wrong, if they're creating space for abuse, then, you know, if you don't have checks on them, um, you're probably going to regret it. So anybody want to, um, to answer that very quickly from the panel? I mean, I'm, in terms of ethnically diverse nations, I'm looking at Nepal, uh, Ethiopia, Tanzania, probably in that order. It's very quick answers. Look at um, chronic poverty amongst ethnic and disadvantaged groups. We found chronic poverty rates were much higher in conflict-affected areas, post-conflict-affected areas now, of Nepal. Um, and in effect, when looking at the subset of chronically poor and looking at constraints to improving their monetary welfare over time, belonging to a caste belonging to a disadvantaged group was associated with reductions in welfare. So that still, that effect still persists even so many years after the conflict, even so many years after all these other processes in place. Um, Maybe, uh, I mean, uh, uh, there is no such structure, especially you know, ethnic minority or something, but because of the, the, the uh, political structure now is f federal, more of based on ethnicity, so that every ethnicity has own, own administration, and the basic was in rural area is land. So land is distributed to farmers. So there is no a group of people who don't have access to land or to other to administrative. <coughs> well, there will be some hierarchy of difference. I mean, the power relationship in some ways, but still, there are people have this, they are say even when they are minorities, they have been represented in the federal uh, parliament or where we have two parliaments for a representative and ethnic representativeness. So there is, I mean, a structure where they can explain or just express themselves and the land resources and other have been distributed at community level. And I think there is limited, um, but there are hierarchies always because of different things, not because of ethnicity. Thank you. In Tanzania, we have uh, people called Hadzabe. They are the, the last hunters and gatherers in the world, Hadzabe. But they are very few. We have also barbaric. These were not covered in, in the study. But uh, about ethnicity, we could talk of uh, uh, pastoralists who migrate from northern Tanzania to central and uh, southern Tanzania. These ones are mainly the Maasai, very famous people in the world. These ones, uh, due to migration, they have little land, but also they are very tactical in the bribing, as uh, Dr. Andrew said, that they can mobilize funds by selling cattle. And they're making sure that, that the cases are not ruled at the local level they're taken to higher levels so they can easily, 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 easily bribe. Uh, the issue of ethnicity is not uh, big in Tanzania because uh, we are less ethnic, although we have more than 120 ethnic groups. But uh, newcomers in specific areas have that problem of getting uh, access to land, and this among them could be could uh, constrain their endeavors toward poverty reduction. Thank you. Okay. I mean, I think it's an interesting note to end on because, you know, along with the economics, as, you know, as Fred pointed out, there is a political process at work here um, and the two go together. And that, that process of building a nation and building sort of a common identity 
and trying to avoid those you know ethnic fissures i think that that is an important part of of um you know a long-term poverty reduction strategy that it you know often we sort of overlook we don't necessarily have very good tools um to describe and to engage with but it's it's definitely yeah that political settlement is is what will shape the possibilities and some of the risks for poverty reduction over the long term um i think we are meant to wind up now i've had well more than the minute um and thank you very much for some excellent questions um we have lunch and we come back at what time at one o'clock so you have sorry beg your pardon you have a one hour break so that would be one thirty. um so thank you very much and we'll see you back here and i'd just like to say um invite you to thank our panel once again for really interesting presentation thank you for listening for more odi live event podcasts find us on soundcloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.